it was around two months ago uh, when I sat down to write out a rough outline for this message today. I knew what Ron was going to be talking about, a succession, um, and I knew that based upon a variety of things on the upcoming calendar, this would not be a good time for me to start another series of messages. So I wondered what might be a good one-and-done message. And I need to explain, hopefully you'll pick up on it, but when I committed to a 12-month timeline leading up to my retirement, I made a determination not to make that a frequent part of my remaining pulpit time. However, I did reserve the right to address it from time to time as God prompts. Having said all of that, starting a couple months ago, but this week, as the message started to really form in my mind, I began to develop a strong sense that this might be one of the most important messages I've ever brought as it relates to the future of caring community. This morning, as I briefly review three Bible stories, and then as I close by suggesting three prayers that I would strongly encourage all of you to be praying, I want to suggest this morning for the next 20 to 25 minutes that you do three things. That you sit up, that you take notice, and you take notes. Haven't had you take notes in a long time. We had an outline in the bulletin that was emailed out. Mark has a few copies of the outline, maybe 10 or 15. If you want one, raise your hand. If you don't want one, take screenshots of anything on the screen you think might have value. Uh, But again, at the very least, take notice to what I have to say. It'll be up on the website. You can listen to it again if you don't take notes now. Um, But I, I just desperately desire to see you take hold of what I have to say. The three Bible stories, uh, Ron talked last week about Christ and the disciples. I also am going to talk about Christ and the disciples from a slightly different perspective. <clears throat> um, sometimes, the, in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes they all tell the same story. Sometimes two of them tell it, sometimes three of them tell it. And what we're going to look at today, or what I'm going to paraphrase for us today, is a story that Matthew tells, Mark tells, and Luke tells. And they each tell it a little bit differently. But it talks about a time in Mark 4, excuse me, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 3 through 5. It talks about a time when Jesus was an adult. He was just getting ready to fulfill God's calling in his life. And he takes 40 days, and he goes out in the wilderness, and he fasts and he prays for 40 days. Now, many preachers like myself, we tell that story and we focus, and many of you in your Bibles will even have a subheading there where it talks about the temptation of Christ. And we will often, myself included, we look at that and we focus upon that temptation process. He's been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him in three specific ways, trying to take advantage of the fact that he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And each time, Jesus responds appropriately. Forty days of prayer and fasting. But to me, what I would emphasize today in that story are a couple of other things. First of all, 
today I would say, let's not focus on the temptation, but let's focus on the fact that Jesus invested 40 days focused in interacting with God in prayer. And at the end of that, he was confronted with an opportunity where he had to make a choice. Was he going to choose his will or was he going to choose God's will? And each time Satan tempted him, Jesus chose God's will over his own. Now that's significant if we look at those stories, at the things that happened next. After that experience in the desert, after Jesus had stood his ground, after Jesus had said, God's will over my will, then is when he began his earthly ministry. So to me, that 40 days of prayer and fasting was an intense time of last-minute preparation to fulfill his calling. But the other thing that he did very shortly after ending this time and starting his ministry, that's when he began to select the men who would be on his frontline ministry team. After 40 days of intense prayer and fasting, he started his ministry, and as he started his ministry, based on that 40 days of intense spiritual preparation, then he picked who was going to serve with him. And to me, that should get our attention and realize one of the best preparations we have, or excuse me, the best preparation we have for ministry is to settle the issue of his will or my will. And then, in a deep state of fellowship and interaction with God, then we make our decisions and prepare our team. The next Bible story <clears throat> talks about Barnabas and Saul. And it's from Acts chapter 13. And I'm just going to read three verses for you. It says, <clears throat> Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and, excuse me, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now again, just a little quick bit of backstory from the previous chapters in Acts. Remember Paul, or excuse me, Saul, his name will eventually be changed to Paul, but Saul had been um, against the movement of Christ. He had a dramatic life-changing encounter with the risen Christ that changed the total trajectory of his life, and he went from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christ follower to being passionate about helping others hear the message of Christ. This is paralleled by a name, by a man named Barnabas. You've heard me talk about him before. His nickname was Son of Encouragement. So we have these two men, and they are with other spiritual leaders, and together they are worshiping, they're fasting, and they're praying. And in the midst of that, God says, these are the guys I want. Send them. Then moving forward as Saul and Barnabas, move out into ministry, they played a pivotal role 
in taking the message of Christ places it had never been before, and in doing so, they transformed the world, and that transformation continues today. And it was birthed as they worshipped together, as they prayed together, and as they fasted. Maybe you've never gone here before. Some of you know my imagination. Sometimes I get to wondering. As you think about what happened, worshiping, fasting, praying, sending, do you wonder even just a little bit what might have happened if the church at Antioch had simply had a potluck and picked two guys to go? without worshiping, without fasting, without praying. Do you wonder, would they have got the right two guys? Would there have been a world-changing progression from that moment? Please understand, you all know me well enough, just look at me. I don't, I'm not knocking potlucks. They have a place. But not replacing prayer. A third Bible story. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Excuse me, disregard that slide. Don't take a picture of it. It should say 1 Samuel 16. I fixed it in my notes. I didn't fix it there. Totally on me. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, say it with me. 1 Samuel chapter 16. All right. Um, I'm even going to read it for us. And I do have the right verses in here. Are you trying to change it, Steve? Okay. Just checking. All right. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So again, a little backstory. <clears throat> for years, the people of Israel didn't have a king. God was their king, and he was all they needed. But they're human and they looked at all the other nations, and they say, they've got a king and we don't. We think it'd be cool if we had a king. You ever been there? Huh? Oh, I just, it'd be so cool if I had that car. You get that car, and you realize that car isn't all it. You know? I died and I saw a really fast, sporty little car. I mean, that car, it could drive under semis. And you know what? At this season of life, what I thought, how would I ever get out of it? <laughs> I could get in it. I could fall in it. But I'd have to roll out onto the ground and get to my hands and knees to get out of it. Be careful what you wish for. The, the people, so Samuel was leading the people. He was a prophet and God would speak to Samuel and he would speak to the people. And they, and the people came to, to, to Samuel and they whined, Oh, we want a king. We want a king. Samuel says, you're not going to want a king. Oh, no, we want a king. God says to, through Samuel, tell them they don't want a king. I'm enough. Oh, no, we want a king. Did your parents ever do this to you? You whine enough, they finally give it to you, and you're sorry they did. All right. They whine. Finally, God says, fine. And they pick a king. They pick a king. And it just goes south in a hurry. All right. So... God is rejecting this King Saul, and he's telling Samuel, it's time to pick a new one. 
um, I'm going to have a hand in this. All right. So verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Because Saul kind of liked being king. And if he heard Samuel's out trying to find a new king, probably won't end well for Samuel. So Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. We're kind of in little smoke and mirrors here. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. <clears throat> What's that? No. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. I was like, huh? <laughs> New Testament Saul is not the same as Old Testament Saul. Sorry about that. I didn't even think about that. It should have stuck with Paul. Uh, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? So again, they're used to having Samuel speak for God. And it's like, why is he here? This may not be good. Verse 5. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Y'all come. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. So he saw this guy and he said, this must be the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of him. Excuse me. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nope, not this one, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Just just imagine this situation. Number one steps up, nope, not him. Number two, nope, not him. Number three, nope. Starting to look, there aren't many left in the barrel here. Uh, keeps going. Get to number seven. No, no. <laughs> so Samuel scratched his head. Uh, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. He wasn't even important enough to get invited to the meeting. He's Oh, he's out taking care of the sheep. He's just a punk kid. Uh, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. Samuel's saying, God's got a plan. I don't get it, but I'm sticking with God's plan. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. When was the last time somebody said that about any of us? I'm, I'm just saying. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. So... Just imagine with me, Samuel could be considered a one-man search committee. If you haven't heard that phrase yet, you're going to hear it in the days and weeks to come. But what's important to note from what I just read is that Samuel did not settle for the traditional choice. 
their traditional choice was the oldest son is the first one up. Samuel didn't settle for that, even though that was what was expected and that was their tradition. Samuel did not settle for the people's choice. You know that as those sons are stepping up, everybody there's got a favorite. Maybe they like the way his hair's parted. Maybe his teeth are really white. Whatever, everybody's got a favorite. The best looking, the most charismatic, the one who's dressed in clothes you own or, or whatever. Everybody's got a favorite. But Samuel didn't settle for the people's choice. Samuel did not settle for Samuel's choice. Remember, first one up, Samuel assumed it was going to be him. He didn't settle for his choice. Samuel settled on God's choice. And this is just my opinion, but I believe it's because Samuel had cultivated throughout his most of his life, he had cultivated the ability to hear clearly from God. So when God said no, Samuel got it. And when God said yes, Samuel got it, even if it didn't make sense. And if you want a little more of the backstory, First Samuel chapter 3 is where we read how Samuel, even as a young boy, began to learn to hear the difference between hearing man's voice and the voice of God. Samuel was being trained in the things of God. And the priest he was serving under helped him learn to discern God's voice from man's voice. And Samuel continued to lean into that for the rest of his life. As we embark upon the deeply spiritual endeavor of calling a new pastor, it is imperative that we understand two things. Our own limitations and God's unlimited power. Our Great Lakes Regional Leadership Team is amazingly talented and they have a great deal of experience in pastoral transitions. But you know what? They have their limitations. Our local board of administration is incredibly dedicated. They have a diverse set of skills and experiences. But they have their limitations. Our search team, when it is selected, we will be striving to select the very best we have available to serve on that search team. But we already know they have their limitations. The only one with the unlimited capacity to help us discern the best choice possible is God. Therefore, the only way, as my title said, the only way for us to put the success in succession is for us to pray. This is a quote by a couple of guys I'd never heard of before. The quote was in a book I was reading. Danny Morris and Chuck Olson wrote these words. Listen carefully. 
decision-making has its limits. We make decisions. Discernment is given. The Spirit of God, which operates at the deepest levels of the human psyche and within the mysteries of the faith community, brings to the surface gifts of wisdom and guidance, which we can only discover and name. Go back to the Bible stories. Jesus fasting and praying before he selected the disciples. The church at Antioch, sensing God wanted to unleash a movement, worshiping, praying, and fasting. Samuel, having it's, it's almost like he's got a, an earpiece and God's chirping in his ear. Oh, not him. What's that, God? Nope. Are you sure? Nope. Not him. Friends, in the days, weeks, and months to come, I encourage each of you to pray three types of prayers that I'm going to mention. They're outlined by a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. She wrote a book called Pursuing God's Will Together. And the first is a prayer of quiet trust. Psalm 131, the psalmist writes, My heart is not proud. Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. To me, the prayer of quiet trust. Oh, I didn't realize I put that in there. Thank you, Steve. I get so busy talking, sometimes I just lose sight of it. Let me go back one here. There we go. To me, the prayer of quiet trust is the ability to say, I don't understand it all, but God, I know you've got this. As you might imagine, if you know me at all, over the past three or four months, God and I have enjoyed some rather intense fellowship times. And the conclusion I came to, not easily, we had to fight over this, but God cares more about the future of caring community than I do. Imagine that. God cares more about the future of caring community than you do. So, yes, we must do our part. Yes, we must pray passionately. But we also need to quietly trust That God's got this. Even if it doesn't make sense. Trust me, we're still talking about this between me and him. But I believe it. The next prayer may strike you a bit odd. It is a prayer for indifference. 
in her book, Ruth Haley Barton says this, In this prayer, we ask God to make us indifferent to anything but the will of God. We ask God to make us... Now, trust me, it's not the prayer of apathy. It's the prayer of indifference. We ask God to make us indifferent to anything but his will. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Remember way back in early in the New Testament when it's time for God to send a Savior? And he shows up, or he sends an angel to have a conversation with Mary, a very, very young woman who had yet to be with a man. And this angel shows up and says, guess what, Mary? You're going to have a baby. And she's like, I'm pretty sure I understand how this works, and I've never been with a man, so not sure how this is going to happen. God says, I've got a plan. In that conversation, Luke chapter 1, verse 38 I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary says, I don't get the plan. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Mary knew the moment she said, I'm in, her life was never, ever, ever going to be the same. People would never look at her the same. They would never treat her the same. She didn't understand at all, but she knew her world was going to change. And she was indifferent to her own agenda and subjected that to God's will. That's at the very beginning of Christ's life. Fast forward to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross is looming before him. He can feel it. And he says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a prayer of indifference. He knew what was coming. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, I'll be right out there with you. I have my wants and expectations for the future of caring community. But I'm not smart enough to figure that out. When it's all said and done, I want what God wants. Even if it doesn't make sense to me at the time. And I think every one of us needs to pray that way. It's great to have wants or expectations or dreams or desires for the future. But when it's all said and done... Aren't we better off with God's plan than any plan we come up with? I know my, excuse me, I have some vague understanding of my limitations. I remember when we were praying for spouses for our children. 
I had a lot of ideas. They didn't seem to think much of my ideas, but that's another story for another day. But really, when I calmed myself down, I realized I didn't know enough to pick a spouse for my child. That's why we prayed. Because God knows better than we do. A prayer for indifference. And finally, a prayer for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5 puts it pretty simply. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Another quote from the book. And friends, you've got to get this. You've got to take it to heart. And probably it applies to a lot of areas of our lives. Just saying. She writes, We often pray for wisdom while we are already attached to some outcome we think is best. Am I touching anywhere you live? We often pray for wisdom while we already are already attached to some outcome we think is best. She looks back and she says, Indifference is an important prerequisite for the prayer of wisdom. Precisely because the wisdom of God is the foolishness of the world. Friends, when it comes to spiritual matters, other people can help us acquire knowledge and understanding. But only God can give godly wisdom. Prayer of quiet trust a prayer for indifference, a prayer for wisdom. In the days, weeks, and months to come, I humbly ask you to pray those things for me. I ask you to pray those for Diana. I ask you to pray those for our Great Lakes Regional Leadership Team. I ask you to pray those for our local board administration. I ask you to pray those for our search team. I ask you to pray them for yourself. I ask you to pray them for those who are members of Caring Community. I ask you to pray for those who attend Caring Community. I'm confident that God has a plan. The best way for us to lean into that plan is to listen. And the best way to do that is as we approach him in prayer. Would you pray with me? Fathers, I think about what I've just said. Father, you know my temptation. You know my inclination. You know my desire to become prescriptive in telling people what to do. But right now, I simply ask, Father, that you would stir in each person's heart and you would help them to do what they need to do to begin to follow the example of Samuel and starting right now, be intentional about developing or increasing 
our ability to hear from you. We thank you and I praise you, Father. Amen.